over the last two Sundays, um, I've introduced you to somebody. Let's look him up there. This is Portview Pete. And this is something that ourselves as a, as a staff and as our this leadership development team we have in the church have created to help us as a church and help you as an individual evaluate if we are growing and developing in the areas that God calls his church to engage in. You see, God has a really defined mission for his church. And a lot of people don't get that. They look at scripture, and this is one reason churches they, that, they, that they kind of get off track, is they don't see that scripture really clearly shows us what we're to be engaged in. And so as we read the New Testament, and we say, what did the early church do? Because that's our pattern for what we should do. We see that there's, there's, there's very specific things that the church is being engaged in. And, and these are the five main areas of activity. Um, worship, influencing others for Christ, connecting authentically with believers, mentoring people to, to Christ-like maturity, which is discipleship, and serving with the love of Christ. That that's the five things that we see in the Bible that we are to be engaged in. Um, now, I'm going to do something to see if I've been doing a good job of communicating for the last two weeks because we're going to spend six weeks talking about this topic. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you a quiz. Everybody go, oh. Nobody likes quizzes, right? But here's the deal. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to grade on, grade on a curve. Or maybe this way. I know when Suzanne was going through nursing school, at the end of their test, they'd have something called the collaborative portion, which means they got to cheat by talking to each other and then, and then come up with answers. They usually get one or two more points on their test by collaborating. So we can collaborate together this morning and, uh, and, and just give you a little quiz to see, to see if what I'm saying is being heard. And here's what I know. I do know partially that, that it's working because somebody walked up to me this morning, gave me something, and said... Well, because as a church, we're people who care. And I hug the guy, and I say, can I give you a kiss? Because you get it. And so anyways, um, I know we're, we're communicating. But it's starting to work, but i got a quiz for you to see if, if we're starting to track with what we're talking about. So, so answer this. Before we think about doing any of these five things that Pete represents, what needs to be, what do we need to be? What needs to be on the inside? And a little hint, it's our motto. What is it? You can say it. We've got to care. Thank you. As a foundation, before we do anything, we have to be people who care. Because what's the deal? God always looks at the heart. God always looks at the, on the inside that, that a person or a church can do these, these external things, these, these five things or other things, and still be unchanged on the inside by the Spirit um, of God working within their lives. You can do stuff by the act of your flesh, but have it not really be spiritually driven. And Jesus called people like that something kind of mean. You know, people always think, so when you say something honest, you go, oh, that's mean. Well, then Jesus was mean, because he called people like that hypocrites. <laughs> he said, not only that, he said, you know what? You're whitewashed tombs. He said, you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. As a matter of fact, he said, full of dead man's bones. What do dead man's bones smell like? Not good. You know, and so you ever have you that, that stuff that's in the refrigerator a week too long? Suzanne, you know what I had to do? Oh, I shouldn't even say this, but Suzanne made me get my own refrigerator a couple years ago. I've got a little college refrigerator because I keep bait in the refrigerator. Salmon eggs, night crawlers, leeches, wax worms. And invariably, I would forget leeches or night crawlers in there. And it's not bad when they're in the container. But when you open the container to see what they are, and they've turned to mush, it is not a nice event. 
And so uh, when things, you know, things stink, so Jesus, that's really what Jesus was saying. He said, if you do the external stuff without having the internal right, he says, you know what, you're just like a whitewashed tomb. You're, you look good on the outside, but you're, you're, full of, you're full of dead man's bones. And we don't want to be that. We don't want to be hypocrites. So, so Jesus, we understand, died to give us spiritual life. That's on the inside, and it expresses itself through hearts of love. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about how, how that, the best way to describe that in our culture today is that we have hearts that care. We say caregivers are people who care for, put action to their feelings of, of compassion. So we're people who care. That's the foundation that we build upon. The most important thing first is where people will care. And the reason we make such a big deal out of that is what happens as human beings, what happens in churches, is we so often just focus on what we have to do and we forget about who we're supposed to be. But we want to make first things first, the most important first, and that says we need to be the people God wants us to be, right? All right, so now you got your first quiz question right. Now, as people who care, we then want to join with God in doing what He has designed His church to do. Remember, it's His design. We don't get to dream it up. One of the big problems in the church world is that, as a matter of fact, if you grew up in a lot of youth ministries in, in our organization, in some ways of God even, you heard things like this, just dream for God. The Bible never tells you to dream for God. It never does. It says, listen to God. It says, join God in what God's doing, but don't make up your own things. And so God's really designed what we're supposed to do. And we found last week that the first thing that we are to engage in, that we're doing is, we are to, to do what? Um, a hint, what's the first thing we should engage in doing? It's, it's the top? Worship. We are to worship God. You got another one right. The top of Port View Pete is the first thing that we do doing after we, who we are being, people who care, is that we then prioritize worship in our personal lives and in our corporate life. The priority one for God's people is to live lifestyles of worship. And we've been talking about how that's not that we, we sometimes think that worship is singing songs. But that's not worship. That's an expression of worship. That our expression of love towards God is our worship. That can be expressed through singing. It can be expressed through silence. It can be expressed through, through giving or serving. It can be expressed even through doing our jobs, our workaday world, um, as acts of worship from grateful hearts, heartily is unto the Lord. That that's all to be a lifestyle of worship. And we really worship when we realize that all that we do is to be worship to the Lord. That's a worship lifestyle. When we get that everything we do is supposed to be worship to the Lord. Now, we also found so far that there are some things that we can do to maintain lifestyles of worship that we can, first of all, fill in the blank at the end. We can take time to smell the roses. All right, you got another one right. And we talked about what that was, that um, Scripture tells us that we, can, we need to be still and know that He is God, and that when we slow down enough to really see God's creativity, like the beauty of a rose or the scent of a rose, to see His genius in His creation and the things around us and our relationships, and to see His involvement in our lives, when we really see His fingerprints on our lives, it then makes us feel like worshiping when we're awed by God. That when you see these things that go, wow, your natural human response and spirit-driven response is that you want to worship. So that's one way we could maintain a lifestyle of worship. We also found that we could maintain a lifestyle of worship by filling the blank at the end here, by overcoming oppression with 
Praise. Thank you. Overcoming. You're, the collaboration is working here, isn't it? You got your last week's notes. Good girl. I like to see you taking notes. And so when you write it down, you remember it. So we overcome oppression with praise. That Isaiah 61.3 says, put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. So you did pretty good on your quiz. Give yourself a pat on the back. Can you do that? You can clap too. I don't care. So you did good on your quiz today. Now what we want to do is we want to look at the next part of Portview Pete. And so I want us to look at his, his left arm, his green arm. We have another slide that will highlight that. They'll look on just that one for today, looking at his left arm. And I had to ask the staff, I said, is it his left arm or his right arm? He said, if he's a guy, I'd shake his hand. That would influence me his right arm. I said, so his left arm, if he was standing looking at you, that's his left arm. And it's green. And it says, notice it says the word connect. So the second thing, that we're, the thing we're going to focus on today, that God has designed his church to do, it's God's plan. And remember, it's not my plan. This is God's plan. So the, thing that, the second thing that God has designed his church to do is for you and I to connect authentically with people in God's family. That we are designed by God to be in relationships with people in God's family. That the church is a place to belong. It's not just a place to attend. The church is designed by God to be a place where we belong, where we, where we get integrated in. It is supposed to be a family. Brothers and sisters in Christ gathering together, uh, bound together by the blood of Christ. The church, if you want to really define it in a few words, should be this. It should be a close-knit relational community. That's what the church is supposed to be. We are designed by God to be a close-knit relational community. You see, the church isn't really the church. When it's made up of a group of people, we call this all, these exist everywhere. You know, where it exists with a group of people who on one time a week maybe, they come together and they enter into a building and they, at the appointed time they go and they sit in a pew and they stare at the back of a head of the person sitting in front of them and they sing some songs and they listen to some teaching and then they get up at a closing prayer and they walk out the door and they get in their car and they drive home and they have no interaction with anybody from that group all week long and the next week they go and do the same thing. All Do all that without connecting authentically with others in God's family. That's not what God created His church to be. I was raised in a church, I'm not blaming the church, but I don't think they, did any, they knew any better, where a lot of times you didn't even take your coat off when you went to church. And you found the one that had the shortest service because you could get out quicker you know exactly what I'm talking about because some of you were raised the same way. And you, you got in, you got out, and you didn't, it, it was no, there was no sense of belonging, there was a sense of duty. I was just doing my duty. I, I felt I was earning something for God. It was like, check it off, God loves me again because I attended. Well, that's not what God designed His church to be. So what I want us to do today is to look at a snapshot of what life in church is supposed to be like. And the best way we can do this is to look at the early church, and so grab your Bibles, and we're going to look at a section of Scripture that I challenged you to read as homework two weeks ago, and I never did have you turn in your homework. So Acts chapter 2, let's read one of the clearest expressions in Scripture that gives us kind of like a snapshot. We kind of see a day in the life of what the early church was like when they, when they, met, when, when they, when they interacted as the very first church. Remember, there was no church before this. 
This is a time where, where the Spirit of God was poured out on the day of Pentecost and all these people come to Christ and now they begin to function together as the church. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. Let's look what it says. Read down to 47. It says, So then those who had, been rece- who had received His word were baptized. So they got saved and they were baptized. And that day they were, there were added about 3,000 souls. How would you like a day like that? One day in church, 3,000 people get saved. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now look at this. Look at this snapshot, this insight into the early church. And we see that one, when I read this, one thing really stands out to me. I just see this. I see relational community. Is that what you see? I see relational community. I see, I see this, this situation where, where oh, it talks about, it talks about they had fellowship with each other, that they were eating together, that they were praying together, that they had all things in common, that they shared with those in need, that they were going from house to house. Look at verse 46. It says, and that they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. It goes out of its way. The Spirit of the Lord goes out of His way to describe this relational community. They lived this idea of connecting authentically with other people in God's family. I want you to understand something. That wasn't something that just happened by chance. It was God's design. Let's understand this, that this idea of connecting authentically as the, as the family of God was based upon a theological framework that they understood and it was also based upon a practical reality that came from the reality that they were following after this man who was crucified and they claimed was now risen from the dead. It has that caused some interaction and some reaction in the world they lived in. So theologically, the first foundation, they understood that when they came to Jesus for forgiveness of their sins, that at that moment, they became members of God's family. You see, the Gospel of John says it like this. They understood this. That It says it this way in the Gospel of John. It says, But as many as received Him, that's Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Look at that. But as many as received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. You see, coming to Jesus brings you into God's family as one of God's children. Friends, that's why together we can do something. We can obey Scripture when it says this. It says, pray this way. The disciples said to Jesus, how do we pray? How did He start the prayer off? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. There's a corporate understanding, this foundational reality that theologically they understood that the Lord, when they came to Christ, is their Father. And as Christians, we know that coming to Jesus brings us into God's family. 
You know, do you realize that those people who are sitting next to you, in God's sight, are your brothers and your sisters in Christ? They're not just your fellow church members. There's something much more real and much more substantial that exists in this bond when we come to Jesus Christ. That we are bound together by the blood of Christ. That when you came to Jesus, you entered a family. They understood that. And that family bond is a strong bond. You know, there's an old saying that says, blood is thicker than water. Well, the blood of Christ is referring to the fact that your family ties are thicker than your other ties. Well, the family ties of being Christian is an is a incredibly strong bond. So there was this theological understanding that coming to Christ makes people family. So they understood that in here. But there was more to it than that for that group and for us today. That also those early Christians lived in a situation where this theological um, understanding became very practical. Because when they decided to follow Jesus, they did gain a new family. They knew that. But they also often lost connection with their real biological family and friends. A lot of people didn't like the fact that they followed that guy who they nailed at a cross and now they claimed was risen from the dead. And just an FYI for you, that still happens all the time. You know, there's people in this room that when you decided to follow Jesus, your family said, I want nothing to do with you anymore. Suddenly you're not invited to the family functions anymore. Suddenly you're the, you're the Bible thumper. Even though you're not doing any, you're not thumping any Bible, you're not hitting people over the head, but suddenly they don't want you around anymore. That practical reality exists when you come into the family of God. It really exists, this existed for them. We saw it huge when we lived in Cambodia. Um, we saw people, when they came to Christ, they turned their back on their Buddhism. Well, guess what? They just lost out in a, in a we culture where everything was about relationships. Suddenly they were gone. They were, they were disinherited. They weren't part of it anymore. These people in the early church and still people around the world experience this all the time. When they, when they choose to follow Christ, that often means their families would reject them. That happens. And just think about how following after Jesus... I'm going to give you an example of, of Scripture on how that was played out in the life of the man who is probably the greatest example of following after Jesus has ever been in the life of the Apostle Paul. Just think, I'm not going to have you read the Scriptures, but I'll just refer to what the stories you already know. Think of who the Apostle Paul is, originally Saul of Tarsus, you know. Who was he? He was this very accomplished, very respected, very well-connected Jewish religious leader. He was part of what I want to call, and this is nothing biblical, it's just what I think understandable, the, the Jewish brotherhood. You know, he was part of the brotherhood. He was part of the in-crowd. He was, when the, when the big dudes rubbed shoulders, he was in the group. He, was, he, he had arrived in, the, in, that, in that world. And together, him and his peers, they led the people spiritually. And we see from Scripture, they fought against what they disagreed with, what they thought was wrong. They went out of their way to fight against it. Matter of fact, one of the first stories we ever see about the Apostle Paul is that he's standing in agreement with the Brotherhood to pick up stones and kill Stephen, one of the early church one of the church Christians. They kill him, they've stoned him to death because he's saying, this Jesus who you crucified is really alive. And he's fulfillment of scripture. And Paul and the brotherhood, they stand there and they kill him because they don't agree with what he has to say. But Paul didn't stay that way. One day he had a, a, a circumstance that he never believed for a second he was going to have. He's walking down the road into a city called Damascus. 
And he's got some letters from the church in Jerusalem, from the highest of the high guys, and they said, here's authority to go in, to arrest, to beat, to do whatever you want to these people who call themselves Christians. He said they follow the way and bring them back to Jerusalem to be found guilty of, of not really worshiping God, of, 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 of rejecting their Judaism. So he goes to Damascus, he's on his way there, and suddenly he meets somebody he never planned on meeting. Who did he meet? Jesus. Jesus shines in a bright light. He says, he says, God, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And right that day, he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, and, and, and just think about what happened to Paul when he did that that day. One of the most amazing things that happened in his life was this. That the brotherhood, those guys that they would kill people together, they're tight, man. What did they want to do to Paul as soon as this happened? Kill him. They made a pact. His buddies made a pact that they would not eat again until Paul was dead. And his new, pe- new friends had to lower him in a basket over the city wall to get him out of the town at night so they couldn't murder him. These, the brotherhood who loved him one day, now he changes allegiance and says, no, 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 this Jesus who I was persecuting, he's really the Lord. He's really the Messiah. We've got to follow him. And they go, you know what? Turn the switch, man. You're the enemy. And they go from loving him to hating him. But you know what? When he lost that family, he understood something. He gained a new family. He gained a new one, and the first guy to reach out to him is a guy named Barnabas. His name means son, son of encouragement. And Barnabas looks at him. Everybody's afraid of Paul because he's been persecuting the church. But Barnabas puts his arm around him. He said, I'm not afraid. And you know what? Sometimes when somebody comes in a church family, everybody says they look kind of strange. They look kind of different. It takes a Barnabas. Be a Barnabas. It took a Barnabas to put your arm around them and welcome them into the family. The other people kind of stood, stood back. I don't want to get involved. But a Barnabas walks up and put his arm around him and welcomed him into the family and gradually, slowly introduced him to the, to the leadership of the church and said, he's a good guy. He really met Jesus. You know, and then from, from there on, he began to be integrated into the family of God. And he becomes friends with Silas. And him and Silas go out on the missionary journey to spread the gospel. And then he becomes, they take along a young man, John Mark, with them, the author of Mark. And uh, they become friends. And then they have a falling out. And he goes off with Silas. And, and, and Paul goes off his own way. And uh, they, they become a family. You know, they, they, everywhere he goes, then we see from the, from the scriptures, everywhere he goes he went and he found more family. He found God's family. He found his family. He had lost a small family and he gained a huge family. And I think one of the events recorded in Scripture that reveals this so clearly is the day it records when he left the city, the church in the city of Ephesus. He'd been ministering in Ephesus for quite a long time. And then it's a day where he's going to leave. And I want us to look at that one verse here, one section of verses today, because it communicates something to us that I really want you to feel. And this, this scripture communicates feeling. And so, look, turn your Bible to Acts chapter 20. You're already in Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, after Paul has given the church in Ephesus some words of encouragement and some words of warning, it's his farewell to these people. He knows he's never going to see them again. And he's, he's warning them. He's saying, I love you and I'm warning you of things to come. Watch out for these things. And after doing that, then he, um, he says these words. Look at Acts 20, starting in verse 36. It says, it says, when he, he is Paul. When he had said these things, these words of warning and encouragement, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud 
and to embrace, they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. So they walked out with him to the ship, and they, they saw him off, and he said, I'll never come back again. But look what it says here. It says that they wept aloud, and they embraced him, and they repeatedly kissed him. What I look at here is I see emotion being expressed. That's why I wanted to read that. It expresses emotion. These folks were family. Their genuine love is evident from their actions. And the Apostle Paul, just look at that transition in his life from being part of one brotherhood who would turn their back and kill you in a second to being part of the family of God. These people joined together in a common goal of loving the Lord and spreading His good news around the planet. You know, and they loved each other so much that when he said to this church, I've got to leave now, it says they hugged him and they kissed him and they cried because they just knew they would, they, they knew they'd never see him again. These folks were family. And I want us to get something today, church. This is what God offers to us when we come to him. We become part of his family when, where we, where we experience love and authentic community. And it's God's plan that as a church of Jesus Christ, as Portview Church, as a family, that we, that this be a place where love and authentic community thrive. That's what God wants for us here at Portview. That we'd be a place where every one of you finds genuine, loving relationships with others in God's family. That you develop some close friends. Because friends, this is how we really experience the kind of love that God has designed for us to live in. He has designed His church to be an avenue through which we experience real love, people really caring for one another. When we we do life together, we get to really know one another so that we can really help and we can really encourage and we can really challenge one another. And that can never happen if we don't really get to know one another. If we just come in and we go out and we never connect then it's just something, but it's not the church. But now here is a a reality that we have to face as a church family. Here's reality. It takes a lot of time to do life together. It takes a lot of effort to make relationships and do life together. And we need to understand this, that as a church... That as we're going to go, we do me a favor, look around right now. Look around the room. There's not a lot of empty seats, are there? By the way, we're getting new chairs in a while to put more people in the same room. But, um, but here's the deal. As we do life together, the reality is the more people we have, it comes harder and harder and harder for us to connect. And we ask this question, how do we possibly keep connecting authentically with people How do we make this work when the church is getting bigger and bigger? And here's the reality, friends. I can't connect with everyone. A lot of times in church, what people want is they want the pastor to all be everybody's friend. That's impossible. I can't do it. I can't be everybody's friend. Suzanne can't be everybody's friend. Pastor Mitch can't be everybody's friend. And as the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, we're full. As the church gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the pastors can't connect with everybody. So how do we do it? Here's the solution. It's a model that I choose to live by. And I think I've told you this maybe once before. The motto is this. Be friends with many, be close with a few, and have issues with none. 
That's a motto I live by. Be friends with many, so I try to be everybody's friend. Be close with a few and have issues with none. That be close with a few phrase in the middle, those are the people that you do life together with. That's where the authenticness of authentic community comes from in the church. A group of close friends within the bigger body of the church. We have friends with everybody, but there's a few people we become close with. The Christian life is experienced most richly when you walk through life with a few other people who are also believers and you do life together with them. You pray together with them. You cry together with them. You help one another. There are some people that you need to have as friends that you can share intimate things that you shouldn't be sharing with anybody else. That you can honestly pray together. You can honestly trust because you've built a bond of of relationship and a bond of trust. And friends, I want all of you to experience real, authentic Christian community. But I know this. Many of us have never experienced this because we just don't know where to start. We just don't know how to get connected. We need to be connected. We understand that. But we don't know how to get connected. And because of that reality... This year, 2013, we're going to be launching, and I've been talking about it for a while now, our small group ministry here at Portview. We're going to call it Connect Groups. That's why his arm says Connect Authentically. In late March, we're going to be hosting an evening that is designed to help people get connected, and then Pastor Chris is going to oversee the development of these groups. And we're going to help you get connected so that you can experience authentic community that God intends for his people to have. Some of you say, but I don't need help doing that. But some people, I understand, we do. And we want to develop a strategy so that we can help people, so that we can look at this thing and say, are we doing the right thing in developing connected, people being connected authentically? We can say, we're doing all we can do to help people connect authentically. And we're trying to create an avenue through which that can happen. And here's my hope as we do that, that by the end of this year, that all of us will be able to look at that image of Portview Pete and say, you know what, I am connected with people in God's family, that my left arm is growing and developing and is healthy. That that part, as I look in the mirror of my life and I say, do I have connected relationships? I can say, yes, I have authentic relationships with people in God's family. You see, when that happens, something great happens to us as a church. And I want you to hear this today, because here's the part that a lot of people don't get. That we go from being structure-driven as a church to being relationship-driven. And I'm going to tell you this, it's all the difference in the world. When we as a church go from structure-driven to relationship-driven, suddenly church becomes what God designed it to be. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say someone has a need. Let's say the need is this that their car breaks down, it needs some repairs, and that person, because of where they're at in life, just can't afford to fix their car. In a structure-driven church, this is what happens. Somebody becomes aware of the need, maybe that person himself takes the action, but somebody calls a church or stops me in the hall and says, Pastor, so-and-so, car is broke down, they need help uh, to fix their car, can the church pay to have it fixed? Now here's the reality of what happens then. Maybe... Myself and the staff, we don't really know who so-and-so is, and we don't know them really well. We don't know their stage of life. We don't know if the reason they can't afford to fix their car is because they're smoking crack every day. We don't know those things. 
and we'd say, well, we're not going to get involved maybe in that situation. They need to change their lifestyle. So we don't really know so-and-so. And so um, we just don't know uh, if it's wise to help that person because we don't really know them or their situation good enough to make a logical decision. So here's what we're left doing. And we have to do it all the time. We're left sitting as a group looking at each other and saying, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure. Um, do you know the person? Not really. And we sit there and we look at each other and we try to figure out what to do. We don't really know what to do. And we have to decide. And this is what I always say. The money that we have to give away was people's tithes and offerings, so we better make sure every penny we use is used properly. We're never going to throw away what God has given to church resources. So we agonize over the decision. That's a structure-driven church. Somebody talks about somebody, and you really know who somebody is. But now let's change the story around a little bit. Now let's say that so-and-so is part of a connect group. And this group is doing life together. They meet together regularly. They have fun together. They, they pray together. They help one another. When one person's in need, the other one babysits for them. And when, it's, when one person doesn't have a family to go to at Thanksgiving, they invite the person over to their house. They help one another. And now let's say so-and-so's car breaks down. And the people in that person's connect group are aware of the need. And because of their relationship, they feel a sense of love and community and connection to that person. And they decide as a group that they want to help. So they collect some money, maybe privately, maybe not privately, but they say, let's pool our resources together, and they bless so-and-so, and they have their car fixed. Now so-and-so is happy because God's church rose up and met a need the way His church is designed to do. Look at the early church. It said they took what they had and they helped those who had not. That's just being biblical. They're happy. The person's happy because their need got met. They feel loved, and they feel connected, and they feel, they feel valued by God. But that's not all that happens. They also, the people in the group, they feel blessed because they were able to help. Because in the other scenario, you know how we helped? People on, we have four times a year when there's five Sundays where we have a, a, an a offering, or we don't want to take an offering special a lot of times, but we make you aware of the fact that we have the Good Neighbor Fund. And people give money to a fund. And they don't know where the money ever goes. Because of that, we don't bring a lot of money in. Because it's like just another money to fund. That's the old way. The new way is it's done relationally. And those people say, I was able to be the hand of God in the life of this person. And we begin to experience the truth of the scriptures that say it is more blessed to give than to receive. God's the one who said that. It's true. And we begin to experience this. And in that relational community, when God uses you, maybe it's not to give money. Maybe it's to babysit. Maybe it's to bring someone into your home for a period of time. Whatever it could be. Maybe it's to give a word of encouragement. God uses you and you receive the blessing of being used by God. And then in that group, they all experience real Christian love through authentic community. Can you see the difference between the two? Can you see how it's night and day difference? Friends, we tend here towards a structure-driven church. If we're going to advance, we need to become a relational-based, driven church. You know, the one, the structure-driven, is, is just obligatory. We do it because we feel pressured to do it. There's a need, we're the church, we're supposed to meet it. We see if we try to decide if it's God's plan or not. But in community, it's love-driven. We want to help one another because we know each other, and we love each other, and we, we love to help each other. One is just a religious machine. And the other is the family of God. The family of God doing life together. 
And that's what God wants for us, that we'd be what? A close-knit relational community. That Portview would be a close-knit relational community where as the church gets bigger, it gets smaller. Does that make sense? Whereas the church gets bigger, it gets smaller. You know one of the one of the barriers to churches growing? And you know what? You guys know about me being here four years. I'm not a big church growth guy. I'm going to make a church healthy. And I believe a healthy church will grow. But to me, it's not about growing. It's about the fact that the people across the street here and in this city, that most of them don't know Christ. And so it's not honoring to God for us to stay where we're at. It's not honoring for a God for us to stay this size because that means there's all kinds of lost people we're not reaching. But you know one of the biggest barriers there is to making a church, they call it the 200 barrier, that's where we're at, to go past there, is this idea that everybody needs to be connected to the pastor. They all want to have a relationship with one person. I'm telling you this. God's plan is that we're friends with many. We're close with a few. And we have issues with none. That makes sense? And as we do that, it, it broadens how big we can become. And then we grow smaller through having close relational communities, but we can grow bigger because now we don't have the limitation of everything coming down to a few key people. And friends, I challenge each of you to get connected with a few others if you're not right now. And I challenge you this. Some of you are sitting here and saying, I don't need this. I have a few friends. Do you understand that it's not just about you? There's somebody else in this church family who needs you. And you need to have a heart that's open. You need to say, you know what? I know I've got this tight-knit little group and I've gone and done life with them for the last 20 years together. God's saying bring somebody else into your tight-knit little group. Let them experience the blessing of your group. As a church, as we get bigger, we need to get smaller. So let's get connected. Let's be open to getting plugged into a connect group in April. We're going to have a meeting the end of March. In April, we're going to kick them off. We're going to talk about that more in, in a couple months or a month or so. And let's experience authentic community. See, I have found in my life, I've always been part of small groups. In my life, Suzanne's life, that's where the real joy of the Christian life is found. In that group where you do life together. Why don't you stand with me this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we would ask you today that you would help us become the kind of community that we see in Scripture. That we would be this close-knit relational community. A place of love, a place of true friendship, a place of acceptance. See, we want to do and we want to be what you want your church to be and to do. God, we want to become that so that you will be honored and the world will be shocked and amazed. That when they come into this place, they will say, truly this is a place where they love one another. Truly this is a place where they care for one another. And so, Father, I pray right now for, this, for our church family that, God, we would be a group of people who have, we're friends with many. There's hundreds of people here today. We're friends with many. That we're close and getting closer with a few. 
and that we have issues with none. 